This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our monthly Bright Focus chat presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. My name is Guy Eakin. I'm the Vice President of Scientific Affairs at Bright Focus. So today we're delighted to be able to talk with Dr. Josh Deneyev of the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. So Josh specializes in the study of age-related macular degeneration. We should say he's also a Bright Focus Foundation grantee, but he, he's also been a, a volunteer for a long time with the organization. He writes our monthly insights articles, which address questions that people with macular degeneration have about their disease, which that can be, copies of that can be found on our website or by calling into the foundation. I'll give the number for the foundation a couple times during the course of the call. But every month we have a different topic for our chats, and today we will be discussing the latest in research discoveries. So if you would like to submit a question at any time during today's call, please press star 3 to submit your question to an operator. And if for some reason you're disconnected from the call, the number to call back in is 877-229-8493, and they'll ask you for an ID code, which is 112 so that's 877-229-8493, followed by the 112435 code. So without further ado, I'd like to get started. So Josh, thank you for joining us today on the call. Uh, could you give us a little, a little statement about where, where you are and what you do in your clinical and research, research duties? Uh, thank you for inviting me, Guy. It's a pleasure to speak to all of you today. Um, so, over the years, I've been caring for patients with macular degeneration and also running a laboratory uh, studying the disease to try to develop new treatments for it. Okay. Well, you know, the, the idea of research is, is something that it's kind of a funny concept and it, it covers a lot of ground. So, we, we talk about discovery science or what might be called basic research. Uh, we also learn about, in our work, about clinical trials, and we hear ultimately about these phase clinical trials that go to, on to become drugs. And I'm kind of curious. I, I think in our education we learn about how the, the path it takes for a bill to become a law, but I'm, I'm curious if you could give us a, an idea about how an idea or an observation in the laboratory goes on to become a, a drug or a cure for the disease. Sure, Guy. Um, typically, uh, scientists will first learn something new about macular degeneration from his or her basic research. Then they'll test the idea in the laboratory, uh, usually first in cells that are grown in plastic dishes. We can grow cells from the retina in plastic dishes and test how they behave test them with drugs to see if they can be protected. And then if they're protective in, the, in these cultured cells, we'll typically test them in mice. And the mice are very powerful because they can be genetically engineered to simulate some features of macular degeneration. Then if the drug still looks promising in mice, we can do some extensive safety testing and then test a drug in human clinical trials. The first phase of clinical trials, called phase one, is really focused on safety. 
to make sure in a very small number of patients that this drug is not going to do any harm. Then if it passes that test, it'll go on to phase two, which is kind of a combination of both safety and a little bit of a hint of efficacy. So it'll ask in a larger group of people, will this drug potentially work? And then finally, if the drug passes phase two, it can go on to phase three, which is primarily an efficacy test. This will be in a large number of patients, typically hundreds, maybe even thousands of patients, to see whether the drug is going to work, whether it's either going to reverse the, the process of macular degeneration or prevent the progression. So, so the uh, phases you mentioned, these are typically related to our government, our FDA's, uh, regulatory oversight, so they're the ones who control this phase one, two, and three. But uh, there's a pipeline of drugs all along the the timeline that you described, and I, I wanted to talk. There's been a lot of advancements in macular degeneration over the past couple years, but if we take a step back and go back even a decade, the therapies that most people are currently using weren't available yet. So these are the anti-VEGF. Uh, drugs that have saved so much vision, but there's, there's a lot of other different technologies in the works, and I was wondering if you could give us a summary of some of the recent discoveries that you believe will make a positive impact in, in the years to come, and, and maybe give a sense of what, what's the timeline on, the, on that statement of years to come. Sure, Guy. Um, so th the discovery of anti-VEGF drugs has really been tremendous for people with wet macular degeneration. So um, VEGF, or vascular endothelial growth factor, is a protein that promotes blood vessel growth and leakage in wet macular degeneration. And the drugs that were developed to inhibit VEGF, like Lucentis and Avastin and Ilea, can, are antibodies that can bind to VEGF and prevent it for a period of a month or two from, from promoting the blood vessel growth and leakage. The process of discovering that VEGF was important until the time of develop development of a treatment took about 10 to 15 years. And that's what I expect will be the time frame for new treatments. Now, that's not to say that we won't see any new treatment for another 15 years because there are several drugs that are in the pipeline now and a couple that are very close to coming out of the end of the pipe. So one is called lampalizumab. This is another antibody that can be injected into the eye. And in phase two trials, it looked quite promising for people with the other form of advanced macular degeneration, which is called geographic atrophy. There are two forms of advanced macular degeneration. One is called wet macular degeneration, and the other is called geographic atrophy. And either one can happen in people with the early form of macular degeneration. That is to say, people with the early form of macular degeneration or drusen um, could progress to either geographic atrophy or wet macular degeneration or both. Um, or they could remain stable and develop neither, which is what we hope will be the case uh, for each person. But should 
the wet macular degeneration or geographic atrophy develop, we want to have drugs to offer to slow the progression or stop it. So lampolizumab is looking promising, and it's just entered phase three trials now. Another drug that is, I think, fairly close to uh, finishing uh, phase three trial is called Fovista. So this is a drug that can, all, can be used for wet macular degeneration in combination with anti-VEGF drugs. And I think within about a year or two, if the trials are successful, ophthalmologists may be able to offer an injection of this drug in combination with one of the anti-VEGF drugs. And that may work even better than the anti-VEGF drugs alone. So those well, are really wanna, the two. Pause just a second uh, before I let you go on with some of the the other drugs. You know, you're you're mentioning something that may may be coming on the market conceivably uh, in a time that many of the people on the call might have an interest in it. So some of these these names are rather complicated. The Fovista is F-O-V-I-S-T-A. But I want to point out that we're going to have a transcript of this of this conversation, this chat that we're having. That will be made available through our website, and it will also be made available if you were to call in to our, to our organization. So I'll give the, phone, the telephone number is 1-800-437-2423. And if you missed it now, I'll say it again a little bit later. But, Josh, I don't want to interrupt you too much. So you, you had been telling us about Fovista and the timeline of maybe one to two years for it to get through these phase three clinical trials. Are there other drugs that you're, that you're watching? Well, the uh, lampolizumab and Fovista are really the ones that are uh, closest to, uh, to coming through the pipeline. Others that are, uh, are in earlier phases of development are um, other drugs that inhibit the same pathway as lampolizumab, but at different points in the pathway. And this, this pathway is called complement. So, Complement is an arm of the immune system that goes wrong in macular degeneration and causes inflammation, uh, kind of like what happens in arthritis. So inhibiting the complement system in animal models is really quite effective. And in this phase two study that I, that I mentioned, it, it did slow the progression of geographic atrophy. So I think we're going to be seeing other complement inhibitory drugs come on the market uh, after lampolizumab. Well, I, I... Also, uh, Guy, I just wanted to mention that my patients, and I'm, I'm sure those of you who receive intraocular injections of uh, anti-VEGF uh, drugs, would love it if the injections could be less frequent. And I think that this is coming. So there are extended release formulations that are being tested that I think could last maybe three months initially and up to six months after that, and then maybe even up to a year. Another thing that's being tested is gene therapy. So gene therapy has become extremely efficient in the eye and my colleague at Penn, Dr. Gene Bennett, has worked out a way to express genes in the eye for years after a single injection. 
And one study that she's running has shown that children who are born blind can, can see following uh, a single injection of a particular gene therapy. Now, this disease is not macular degeneration, but it really serves as a paradigm to show that gene therapy can work. And I think that gene therapy will be useful for macular degeneration in the future, and it may require only a single injection to get a very long-term effect for several years or perhaps even a whole lifetime. That's incredible. I, you know, in the, these are the brave new world sort of uh, sort of research that we think is going to be coming on online. You know, one of the things we've been hearing about for the last 20 years is, is stem cell therapy. And macular degeneration is a place where stem cell therapy is really being hotly tested. Do you do you have any opinions on what you're seeing out in the uh, out in the research world around stem cell therapy, and where where is it relative to some of the other drugs and technologies you've been talking about? Stem cell therapy is very exciting. It has a lot of potential. Stem cells are cells that have, well, no pun intended, the potential to develop into any cell type. They're like cells that we have very early on in the process of embryonic development. And it's possible to get stem cells either from embryos or remarkably even from an adult where we can take a little piece of skin or blood cells, introduce a few genes that sets the clock back and turn them back into stem cells that can then be coaxed to, to turn into eye cells, into retinal cells. So we can turn the clock back and then move it forward again and turn them into retinal cells. So the potential to take cells like these and put them into the retina of somebody with macular degeneration is really, it's very exciting. Uh, but it's not really something that has been proven to be effective at this point. There are a number of challenges. One is getting these cells to take up residence in the correct position in the retina and then do all the things that these cells are supposed to do, including integrating into the circuit that already exists in the retina. There are already millions of cells in the retina and they've already developed their relationships with each other. So trying to get stem cells to form the correct connections to those pre-existing cells is really quite a challenge. There is one particular cell type that's affected in macular degeneration, which is called the retinal pigment epithelial cells. And those may be the first that are going to be successful with a cell transplantation therapy approach because those cells don't need to make nerve connections to other cells. They just need to sit under the retina and support the retina. So if those cells can be transplanted and coaxed to form an appropriately supportive layer, then they may well be useful for people with macular degeneration. There have been some initial human clinical trials indicating in, in very small numbers of patients that this type of transplantation looks like it's safe but really no significant evidence of efficacy yet. So 
I think things are looking promising, uh, but not as far along as gene therapy at this point, because as I mentioned in, in uh, gene therapy clinical trials, there's really strong evidence of efficacy. The gene therapy can give sight to children who are born nearly blind. So we've, we've talked about new drugs. You, you've told us about gene therapy. We've talked about stem cells, which may, may be more than stem cells. They might come from an adult body, or they could uh, uh, even come from maybe even circulating blood sometimes, uh, maybe not even from your, from your eye. One of the things we haven't talked about but is out there and captures the imagination like some of these other technologies is the artificial retina or retinal prosthesis. And, and I'm curious, I, you know, if you could say a word about that. And you, know, you, you seem to indicate you think gene therapy is further along. Where does this artificial retina stand in relationship to the other, to the other, the other therapeutic way, methods that we've been talking about? Sure. Um, so the retina consists of multiple layers of of cell, different cell types. And there's there's one layer in particular that gets affected by macular degeneration. Uh, these, are, these are the photoreceptors. Uh, these are the cells that sense light. And there are other cells that the photoreceptors normally would signal to. And those cells are not affected very much, if at all, in macular degeneration. So even after the photoreceptors are gone, these kind of secondary cells in the retina are still there. And the goal of a prosthesis or an electronic chip that sits on the surface of the retina is to bypass those dead photoreceptors and stimulate the secondary cells directly with an electrical impulse. And this has been successful. This has been FDA approved, and it works for people who really can't see anything at all. It allows them to see a little bit of light, uh, about uh, 60 or 100 pixels of, of spots that enable them to see maybe a letter at a time, which makes a huge difference to somebody who can't see at all. But for a lot of people with macular degeneration, given the current state of resolution that they can get with these electronic chips, it would not improve their vision beyond what they have to get one of these chips. So what I'm hoping is that these chips will get bigger, they'll have more and more pixels, and they'll, they'll really get to a stage where they can improve the resolution beyond what somebody with very advanced macular degeneration already has. Unfortunately, people with very advanced macular degeneration usually retain their, their side vision, their peripheral vision. They can see enough to, to get around um, carefully, uh, maybe read with a closed-circuit television or magnifiers. So the kind of resolution that we're getting with these electronic chips currently does not improve vision beyond what these people already have. Well, I'm sure the many of the callers have questions. I want to remind people that if you press star 3, that'll take you to one of our operators who can take down your question. We can ask those on the line. Before I move into the question and answer session, maybe while people are pressing star three and, and submitting their questions, ask one more question of, of Dr. Donayev myself. 
And so we've talked about research into new therapies, but AMD has a, a strong history of drugs that are being repurposed, and that is to say that they were approved for one condition, like cancer, you know, in the case of Avastin, but are now being explored for AMD. And as a physician, what does a drug manufacturer have to prove to you to make the medical community willing to begin a off-label use? And I'd be curious if you have any repurposed or repositioned drugs that you're watching. Yeah, I mean, this off-label use category is, is very interesting. So what, what it allows us to do is take drugs that are FDA-approved for, for one thing, um, perhaps uh, for uh, treatment of a skin disease, and and then use them for macular degeneration. Um, and these drugs have already gone through rigorous testing, um, so that lowers the barrier for testing them for macular degeneration. They've already been shown to be safe, uh, at least when given in certain ways. So... Uh, one example of, of uh, such a situation or a similar situation is a, a nutraceutical that, that uh, we'd like to test soon in, in a small clinical trial. It's called lipoic acid. Uh, so this is an antioxidant that's already available over the counter. And we would like to start a small clinical trial to see if this will arrest the rate of progression of the geographic atrophy form of advanced macular degeneration. And the advantage of this type of small trial is that this compound has already been given to people for over 50 years, and it's known that it's really quite safe. And that's very different from a brand-new compound that's developed and needs to be tested in multiple different ways to make sure that it's not going to cause any harm. Um, so you know, this type of thing, I think, has the potential to bring new treatments on the market uh, faster than it would take for a brand new substance. And uh, these things could be uh, quite effective. Well, wouldn't that be amazing if the if the next treatment for macular degeneration had been under our noses for the last 50 years? I I, I find that incredible. I'd, I'd like to move on, though, to some of the other questions that are coming in. So we have quite a few coming in. So we have Sue from Michigan asking very simply, is macular degeneration hereditary? And so what do we know? What does research tell us about the genetics of macular degeneration? Well, Guy, macular degeneration is both hereditary and environmental. So we know that people who have affected family members have about a twofold increase in risk of developing macular degeneration themselves. And some of the new genetic techniques have allowed us to determine that some of the genes responsible for this hereditary part of the disease are in this complement cascade. So again, complement is, is a part of the immune system, and it, it seems to become overactive in macular degeneration. And the people who inherit complement mutations that make their complement cascade more active 
are the ones who are who seem to be at higher risk. So it makes sense to target the complement cascade uh, with drugs to try to prevent some of that inflammation uh, that that these uh, mutations or uh, DNA sequence changes uh, can cause. There are some other genes that also confer uh, some risk, but we don't understand how those work as well as we do uh, the complement genes at this point. Environmental factors are also very important. So smoking is a very strong risk factor. So I emphasize to all my patients that they should try their hardest to stop smoking if they currently smoke. I know it's very difficult to stop but it is something that uh, significantly increases the risk of losing vision. Um, for those of you who have stopped, congratulations. I know it's extremely difficult. Another thing, another environmental factor is diet. Again, something that's very difficult to change, but a number of studies have shown that people who eat more fruits and vegetables and fatty fish like salmon, sardines, mackerel, or tuna twice a week have a, a reduction in their risk of macular degeneration. So emphasizing a Mediterranean-type diet with more fruits and vegetables and some fish and a little bit of nuts and less red meat really seems to make a difference. Other things that are kind of possible contributors are um, sunlight. So people with macular degeneration, we think, should wear sunglasses. Uh, when out in bright light, especially in the snow. A lot of us have had a lot of snow exposure recently, and on the day after the snowstorm, if it's really sunny, there's a lot of light reflecting off that snow. So it's good to wear sunglasses under those circumstances. Uh, when driving, there's a lot of, of sunlight reflecting off the road. If you're still able to drive, a good idea to wear sunglasses when you're out on a bright, sunny day. Well, I'd like to like to move into uh, a question that's kind of similar. We have two people calling in and asking about uh, about the health of their fellow eye or their you know their good eye. So they have macular degeneration in one eye, and Ruth from California and Charlene also from California are asking you know, that when you have when you have one eye affected by macular degeneration. What do we know from the research about how to protect the fellow eye? And so you've talked about some of the, the general behavioral things, but is there anything specific to someone who already has macular degeneration that they can do? Um, yes. So several NIH-sponsored clinical trials over the past decades uh, have, have taught us a lot about the risk to the second eye. Um, so... In general, it's about a 10% risk per year of the second eye developing advanced macular degeneration and being at significant risk for losing some vision. That 10% can be modified depending on whether the patient has high blood pressure, so that high blood pressure also increases the risk, um, whether they have many drusen, drusen are little white spots, that the ophthalmologist can see in the retina. So more drusen increases the risk. And whether they smoke. So as I mentioned, smoking also increases the risk. 
So for somebody who has advanced macular degeneration in one eye, uh, but not the other, uh, there, there is a risk that the second eye will be affected, but on the bright side, there's a 90% chance in any given year that that good eye will maintain its good vision. And if it starts to develop wet macular degeneration, we do have these anti-VEGF drugs like Lucentis that can be injected into the eye to help to protect the vision and hopefully minimize the amount of vision loss that occurs uh, going forward. We don't currently have any drugs for the geographic atrophy form of advanced macular degeneration, but as I mentioned, lampalizumab is very far along in clinical trials, and it could be that within a few years, uh, that one will be available to slow the progression of geographic atrophy. And as I mentioned also um, in uh, the clinical trial that I'd like to do, uh, hopefully lipoic acid would be shown to slow the progression of geographic atrophy. Well, so, so Marcel from Missouri is asking a question that we have so many people coming to our foundation and asking. So Marcel has had wet macular degeneration for 10 years and feels he's losing his sight every day and asks, and I'll quote here, how long before he goes completely blind? If you had Marcel in your, in your clinic uh, and, and he asked that question, how, what kind of response would you give to Marcel? Marcel, um, one thing that I would tell you is that it's very unlikely that you would go completely blind from macular degeneration. Macular degeneration typically only affects the macula, which is the very central part of the retina, leaving the edges of the retina, the peripheral retina, intact, so that you would very likely be able to use your peripheral retina to still see, to, to get around, um, and to read very large letters that are very well lit, especially if you look off to the side. If you look off to your side and view things, as we say, eccentrically, then you can have the object you're interested in fall on your peripheral retina, and it'll be visible to your peripheral retina. All right. Well, we've had a, a number of questions coming in that that hint around the idea of how do we get enrolled in clinical trials and what do we need to be concerned about. So how do I find out about a clinical trial? And once I'm in, you know, what, what, how do I learn about what the dangers might be? Well, the best source of information is going to be your ophthalmologist, your, your retina specialist, They'll have a list of clinical trials and know uh, which ones you might be eligible to, uh, to enroll in. Each clinical trial will have inclusion and exclusion criteria. They'll need people to have a certain range of visual acuity. Um, they'll need them to have either wet or dry macular degeneration. There are many factors that would be difficult for you, the, the patients, to sort out on your own. So really, the first line is is your ophthalmologist. There is a uh, a site that the uh, that the government has on the internet called clinicaltrials.gov, 
and you can search for macular degeneration, and you'll see that there are hundreds of clinical trials listed on that site under macular degeneration. And then specifically, you can look under wet macular degeneration or geographic atrophy, and it'll tell you whether a particular study is enrolling patients. So you can look at that, but again, I think it will be difficult for you to sort out whether you might be a candidate for any particular trial and what are the potential risks and benefits. These are things that your ophthalmologist can help you sort out. And then if you do get referred to the person who's running the clinical trial, they will still screen you um, and see if you qualify and explain all the potential risks and benefits of, of the trial in a process called informed consent. So you'll need to really think about whether you want to enroll in this trial and somebody will explain it to you in great detail and you would, you would need to sign an informed consent indicating that you understand all the potential risks and benefits. Okay. We have a question here from Ms. Ekta from California who's asking that there's a, saying that there's a number of products out there that you can find in, in various places, online and others, that test for AMD risk based on the heredity of the patient. And asking, what, what, what's your view of these tests that, uh, that will take a sample of your, uh, you know, maybe a sample, a sample of your, uh, from your cheek or, or, or blood maybe, and would say, here, compute your risk for macular degeneration? Well, these tests do exist, and I think they will become useful once they have some impact on, on what you would do uh, given a particular test result. So, so I think they're, they're really only useful if they would enable you to reduce your risk by modifying some behavior or taking some treatment. Currently, there's no strong evidence that these genetic tests would allow you to reduce your risk um, by, by taking a, a medication or by changing your behavior. Uh, what we talked about before as ways to reduce risk, uh, eating fruits and vegetables, uh, wearing sunglasses, stopping smoking. Oh, and maybe we didn't mention yet um, taking vitamins in, uh, based on the age-related eye disease study 2, or AREDS 2, uh, people who have a certain number of these spots in their retina or drusen have a significantly reduced risk of developing advanced macular degeneration if they take these AREDS 2 vitamins every day. So, Knowing that you have this or that mutation isn't currently going to influence whether you take the vitamins or whether you eat that diet or whether you use, whether you receive um, injections of anti-VEGF medications if you have wet macular degeneration. So again, there's really, there's really nothing that, that you're going to change if you, if you get those test results. However, I think that may change in the not-too-distant future because in the lampalizumab trial for geographic atrophy, a certain subset of patients with a certain mutation in the complement cascade benefited more from other than as compared to other patients. 
Well, I want to so, point out I, what we we had a question saying hey, you're talking a lot about wet macular degeneration, but but some of these things uh, apply to to dry macular degeneration. And the the question that followed on that was Dennis from New York asking if we can uh, explain what geographical atrophy is. Uh sure. So yeah, these are kind of confusing terms. So early on in the disease or people with early macular degenerations all have dry macular degeneration. And they have these little white spots in the retina called drusen, which represent little deposits of, uh, I like to think of it as garbage underneath the retina, garbage that accumulated over the years and wasn't efficiently taken out or, or removed. And then from that stage, people can have early macular degeneration for their whole life and really never lose much vision, which is hopefully what would happen. But in some patients, they progress to advanced macular degeneration or late macular degeneration. And with late macular degeneration, the retina can still remain dry, meaning that no new blood vessels have grown and there's no leakage from blood vessels. Instead, there's atrophy, which means that a certain number of the vision-sensitive cells, the photoreceptors, have died in a region of the macula. And this region can expand over time so that all of the photoreceptors in the center of the retina, the macula, die. People who develop wet macular degeneration have new blood vessels grow into the retina and leak and bleed and this leakage makes the retina kind of soggy, and that's why we call it wet. Well, I, I want to point out that actually our next chat, the topic of it is what you need to know about dry macular degeneration, and that'll be on Wednesday, March 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Pacific. I think we probably have time for about one more question. And there's a question from Jackie from New York who, who really is asking about the, the bravest of new worlds. Says that her, her, her father has macular degeneration. And what do we know about eye transplants? Now, that's, that's been in the news uh, in, the, in the last year, people trying to get that started. What, what, that, that's a long ways off, but what, uh, what can you tell us about a whole eye transplant? Dr. Dunaev? Yeah, I, I wish we could, we could transplant a, a whole eye uh, currently, but we can't do it because the eye has a nerve attached to the back of it called the optic nerve that contains a million little axons or uh, little wires, if you will. And those wires need to be connected to the brain properly for a patient to be able to see. And in an embryo or a fetus, those connections can be made. But in an adult, we don't know how to entice those axons to make the appropriate connections. We have some research going on around the country where people are trying to learn how to entice those axons to reconnect. Um, some clues come from uh, goldfish, uh, which, which can uh, reconnect, um, and other clues come from uh, axons that are 
uh, grown in a dish and uh, given um, fertilizer, if you will, or signals that, uh, that tell them that they should grow and, and reconnect. Um, but we're, we don't have eye transplantation uh, as a therapeutic option on the table, I think, for uh, a number of years. Uh, we, we can transplant parts of the eye. Uh, we can take a cloudy cornea in the front of the eye and uh, remove it and uh, replace it with a, with a cadaver donor uh, cornea. Uh, we can remove a cloudy lens in uh, cataract surgery and replace that with a clear plastic lens. Uh, but we can't, unfortunately, remove a... We can't replace a whole eye uh, with with a with a healthy new eye uh, at this point. All right. Well, that that sounds like a topic for for another chat. Unfortunately, we are running out of time uh, for the people whose questions we were not able to address. We will we will try to put a response together and make sure that we can uh, we can get you the the information that you're asking. So at Bright Focus, we are. Committed to providing the information that you need most, please, if you have a second, take a moment and let us know how this chat worked for you. So if you found this topic very helpful, we'd love to hear from you. Please press, press 1 to let us know that the topic was helpful. Press 2 if it was, eh, it was kind of helpful, somewhat helpful. And 3 if you did not find this topic helpful at all. So while you're doing that, pressing 1, 2, or 3, 3 for very good, or one for very good, three for uh, need some help. I want to take every, take a moment and thank everyone for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, thank you for everyone who joined the call. Thank you to Dr. Deneyev for, for taking the time out of his week, week to, to speak with us. So in a, if you give us about a week, we'll be posting a recording and a transcript of the call on our website. You can also listen to and download the, the past chats through iTunes and SoundCloud, or just call 1-800-437-2423 to order a print transcript. So that's 1-800-437-2423. So you can order the print transcript. We also have quite a few publications about macular degeneration and about uh, driving on, that, is, that are available through the foundation through that telephone number or through our website at brightfocus.org. Our next chat, as I said, will be on what you need to know about dry AMD, and that will be on Wednesday, March 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern. We encourage you to register, submit questions in advance, and we'll be sending you another reminder email. And in fact, you can register for the March chat right now and also request free materials from Bright Focus, like our Macular Degeneration Essential Facts brochure, by visiting our website or the calling the number. That's 1-800-437-2423. Thank you again to everyone for joining us today, and again to, to Josh for providing your expertise. If you'd like to leave a comment after the call, just stay on the line. Thanks and from all of us at Bright Focus Foundation. Have a great day. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.